and welcome to the Modern Co Podcast. My name is Dotsun and I'm here with my co-host Jude. Today we'll be talking to a behavior coach about men's mental health. Bimia Dikoya is a behavior coach who is board certified in applied behavior analysis and is currently pursuing a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Thank you for joining us, Bimi. You are welcome. I'm so glad to be here. I'm just someone who cares about people's mental health and who decided that the best way to be helpful will be to get the education that will help me be helpful. That, that sounds really good. I mean, um, we've all seen how you've brought to the fore your experience so far with mental health issues. We've seen how you've been able to sometimes uh, diagnose, if that's the word, a few issues and i believe yeah that's impressive all right um why does it seem men are more prone to mental health issues but less prone to seeking help all right that's a really good question and i like that you asked that because it forced me to go look at the data that way i'm not answering this question from what i think or just purely from my perspective but from what research says right and so I looked at what the World Health Organization, um, the information that they had in a recent paper that they released. And it's interesting to know that um, mental illness is common across genders. So we have a prevalence of mental illness a lot more now than we had in the past. I blame Twitter. <laughs> No, I think it's more a question of awareness than a question of emergence. And let me explain what I mean. I, I like to use this example. You know, back when my, my dad was born, he had five siblings, but he was the only surviving one. Now, with the prevalence of education, we know that because he's AS, his genotype is AS, I'm able to, you know, extrapolate from that information to say, more than likely both his parents both his parents were as and so they probably had four ss children and he was as now because we have that knowledge and information would you say that sickle cell is more prevalent now than it was in the past or would you say now we know that certain genotypes can have kids with certain genotypes so is it that sickle cell is more prevalent or is knowledge and education making us more aware how would you answer that yeah bass boost bass boost i would Not say it, the witches uh, <laughs> they're all on twitter now. <laughs> no, so that's the thing i don't think that mental illness is more prevalent i think we just know more now so therefore there's more diagnosis and if we use the same example of genotype that i just used that tells us that mental illness existed we just didn't have names for it we just didn't know what it was so we called it something else so we called ss abiku back in the day but now because we have knowledge and information we're not calling it that anymore so there is indeed a prevalence of mental illness a lot more people have been diagnosed with mental illness now than we used to have back in the day yes however i don't think it's a case of a rise in prevalence so it's not that it's more now it's just that we're more aware of it because of education and, I guess, information. Um, you don't think the fact that we're more connected, we have access to more information, more, more knowledge of what is happening across the world at the same time. I was reading somewhere that the human mind 
has not evolved to be able to handle the the deluge of information we are receiving currently like right now if an accident happens in malaysia you'll hear about it um, a natural disaster in france you'll hear about it and all this in the space of five minutes you don't think that has also contributed a little bit well i'll agree that it contributes to associated problems with mental illness but i don't think that it has a causative effect so this is what i mean we have more knowledge now we're getting news now so does it increase maybe like our symptoms of anxiety and are we you know less able to cope with those problems perhaps yes but is that the cause of mental illness I would like to say no, because that's not what's causing mental illness. Is it making it worse? Is it making it harder to deal with? Perhaps yes, but is it causing it? I'd like to say no. So there's a prevalence in diagnosis, but I don't think that we're, it's, it's getting caused more. We're just becoming more aware. I, I think the access to rapid information, being fed negative news as fast, as we are getting these days, is a problem in itself. In, in some part, I do agree with what Bemi said. However, I think it does play a significant role. The world as we know it is changing. It's continuously evolving. I mean, access to negative information, things that you would not pay attention to in the past. is it, this, These things heighten your anxiety. They heighten your your fear thing i mean and i think in the end it just pays it, it, it goes towards affecting your general mental well-being an example um would be and and correct me if i'm wrong this is not saying it's negative and i know it's a controversial aspect of it in the past women were told oh when you get pregnant in a small thing but as time has come on there was a time on twitter different women started talking about their experiences now even i have become scared about my wife getting pregnant the access to information the fact that now we are telling the truth as it is nobody's sugarcoating it is it good i don't know is it bad i don't know. yes because before you just you get married get pregnant anyhow you see it. but now you're thinking deeper you are putting more thought into it Will I die when I get pregnant? What happens to my body? This woman said she almost died. We have videos of Serena Williams. You know, I mean, this is Serena Williams. This is a woman who is active, who, you know, and then here we have access to information in some part has played, I don't know. I see what you mean, Jude. And I think it's an important point that you make because access to information can either instill fear or instill hope using the example of pregnancy that you gave what happened before was that there was just no information so people practically went in blind they didn't know what to expect so that has the advantage of perhaps they're not afraid but also that means people are unprepared right so now that you have more information Will people still be afraid? Yes. But do you think that having information makes them better prepared to deal 
What do you think? I do think having more information prepares you to deal uh, because you'll be mentally ready. You brace yourself. I've had an experience one time where I felt I was dying and I just I had just accepted my fate at that time. At the final moments, at the time time I thought was the final moments, I just accept, accepted my fate. And, you know, I just kept saying, I just kept saying silent prayer. So in translating that, I would say, yes, it'll get you prepared and, you know, you accept whatever is coming with the information you have. Yeah, I think it better prepares you um, so you don't go in blind. So it's a case of in the, in the past, we used to have what you don't know won't kill you, right? So ignorance made people, I don't know if it made them feel safe, but they were just unaware of what was out there. So it's like, for example, I like how Dr. earlier on talked about the news. You are suddenly aware of everything that's going on out there. So in the past, it didn't mean that there were no plane crashes. There were no natural disasters. It's just that in your little village in Lagos or Ogun State, you're not aware of what's going on in the United States or you're not aware that there's an earthquake or that a plane crashed in Ethiopia, right? So you're not being aware of those things didn't mean that they happened less. You just didn't know, right? So you didn't have anxiety because you didn't know, but it didn't mean that the world was more safe. You just didn't have the awareness. So that lack of information meant that you didn't have anxiety, but it didn't mean that the world was a completely different place. However, now you have all that information. In addition to the anxiety, there are also the possible effects of you are aware that there's a measles outbreak in some certain states of the United States. Therefore, somebody that is in Nigeria whose neighbor is saying, I'm not going to vaccinate my child, you are able to tell them, have you heard that people in the United States are getting measles more because some people decided not to vaccinate? You have more information. Are you going to use that information as a tool to better prepare yourself or are you going to allow the fear to overtake you? So I think we, we can't really say that an overabundance of information is a bad thing. However, like Dotun rightly said, perhaps people don't have the tools to cope with that overabundance of information. So to go back to our original question, does it seem like mental illness is more prevalent? I don't think it is. I think we're just now more aware of what mental illness is. We know the symptoms to look out for. We know we can identify it. Like for example, we didn't know about dyslexia when I was younger. So kids will get beaten for not being able to read. But now that we know that there's dyslexia, when we see a child that's struggling with reading, instead of beating that child to death, we can get that child an assessment and give them the tools they need to succeed. So the lack of information in the past, I don't think was helpful. I think now that we have information, people can access care and they can have interventions that can make the difference between a low quality life and a high quality life. Why does it seem like men are more or less prone? Because I, when you see on social media, women are always talking to each other about self-care, mental health, doing this, multiple things, building communities around each other that seem to help them manage the day-to-day life's issues. But it seems for men, mental health is not something we talk about a lot. Why is that? That's a really good question. I think it's a stereotype problem, which unfortunately doesn't only affect 
people when it comes to diagnosis. It also affects people when it comes to treatment. This whole idea that the man is supposed to be strong, he's not supposed to show weakness, boys don't cry. What you have is a situation where I cry. I'm just saying I cry a little bit. I like that you use the qualifier that you felt the need to say only a little bit. Would it have mattered if you cried a lot or if you cried a little bit? I cry. I cry. If I cry when I need to cry. I don't. I don't care. So would you say that that's something that you had to unlearn and relearn as you became more aware? I think it's my age. I think, I, <laughs> I swear <laughs> to God, I'm not even joking. I got to this particular age and I became a lot more emotional. That's a lot interesting. We need to do further research on the age of men and the effect it has on their emotional expression. Uh, yeah, I think, I it's mean... It's living uh, Nigeria that changed this. No, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not even joking. Like, I got to a particular age and I became a lot more expressive. I used to be a lot more aggressive, maybe pent up anger and all that. But now, I don't care. So, do you see a link between your aggression and your emotional expression? Yeah, I I do see. Yeah. So, you think that as emotional expression went up, aggression went down? Yes, absolutely. So, you think that both factors are inversely correlated? They are correlated. They are correlated. Um, I I will not say, you know, um, I will not say I do not agree. I, I, do, I will not say that I do not agree that um, you are conditioned to feel macho. Um, you are conditioned to to feel macho. You are conditioned to act this. And this is this has absolutely nothing to do with my parents or my upbringing. It was just the society. It will make you feel like. Uh, a typical example was when I was in secondary school. Um, in class, there was this girl called Oluchi. She beat me. I've been bothered. Close your ears now, please. <laughs> Oluchi beats Jude. Exactly, hey. exactly, exactly. So, like, Oluchi pushed me. She didn't beat me. She pushed me against against desks in the class. We were in GSS2 or something. Pushed me against desks in the class. You know, kept hitting me. I was just protecting myself. Till tomorrow, even in our secondary school group on Facebook, they will still mention it that Oluchi beats Jude. Till I left that school, everybody mentioned it that Oluchi beat Jude. Now, if I was in that, if I was the kind of person who would go and beat Oluchi or who would hit, because it was something that he used to taunt me. Imagine, shameless, you, you not get shame, woman, they beat you. How did that make you feel? Well, I learned to live with it. I learned to live with it. Um, Oluchi was somebody who we got to SS3, left the school. We used to see her once in a while after school as well. We used to, we used to see her and everything. I never fought. I never go, went back to fight her. You understand? But I could have easily gone back to fight her to prove a point that she didn't beat me. So the society, society environment around me conditioned me to believe that, you know, I was not being who I was supposed to be if I didn't take certain actions. And I think that's a valid point that you raised, Jude. The fact that as a society, certain things are acceptable and not acceptable. And those messages are not necessarily overt messages. They're not things that people verbalize or vocalize. It's just in the way society is set up. So certain things are acceptable to this society and is that a man should be strong, a man shouldn't show weakness. 
a man shouldn't do certain things. And then there's certain ways a woman should be that a woman is allowed to be. And a woman is, you know, allowed to be expressive. So like Jude said, it appears that in his personal experience, there's an, there's a correlation that he's established between his, um, feelings, being able to express them and physical aggression. So would you guys agree that being able to express yourself and talk about your feelings reduces the likelihood that you will blow up or that you will need to use your hands? Yeah, 100%. Um, 100% for me. Um, for 100%. me, for me, the issue of what is a man supposed to do, who is a man supposed to be, has literally dogged me my entire life because I was... I'm the first son of a single mother who had two other girls. And all of my life, all I heard from relatives was Shebi Okorin, Iwoloko, yeah, like, be, act like a man. Uh, you, are, you, are your, you are your mother's husband. And there was that expectation that I need to do all of that. But I was a weird child. Telling me to do something literally meant I would do the exact opposite. So I ended up not being that way. I was extremely emotional all of my life it got to a point where my sisters were closer to me than they were to anyone else because i i'm just comfortable i'm comfortable with them even till now most of my friends are women i i i feel more comfortable interacting with women than i am with men because i don't know what it feels like i don't know what it is to be macho i don't i don't understand the dynamics i don't understand what i'm supposed to do so i don't even bother like for instance the first time after i moved to the u.s the first time my mother came to stay with me for a while, she realized that I cook most of the time. And that's because I love cooking. And I see the kitchen as my space and I kick everyone out of it. And I don't want you in there while I'm cooking. And after a while, my mother was like, I was like, do you want me to buy a return ticket? Do you want to go home? <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting this example that you bring up because you were a certain way because you were comfortable with it and there was no problem with it until someone else pointed it out. Do you guys see how a person can be a certain way until somebody else says, is this okay? Is this the way that you're supposed to be? And I like the fact that it was your mom who pointed it out because you know that that's coming from a well-intentioned place of love. Would you agree? Yeah. So it's coming from a well-intentioned place. However, it is you choosing to be a certain way or being a certain way and somebody asking you if that way is okay. And since most of the things that we do are unconscious, you now start to ask yourself. So I like that the response that you had was, do you want to leave? Because you had the growth and self-awareness to know that this was a choice that I'd made because it was something that I enjoyed. Now, imagine an eight-year-old boy, a nine-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy who's living in an environment that, it, that where he's surrounded by people who have fixed ideas of what gender roles are. And the moment he tries to do something outside the box or something outside the expectation of what the commonly accepted gender role is, there are people in his life who step up and say, 
No, you can't do that. No, boys don't do that. No, that's not acceptable. No, that, no, that's not okay. Do you see how that without his needing to do anything about it or being actively involved in the process, do you see how that shapes him into a certain type of man? Yes, very much. Because it's also something I notice when we're having conversations online and we are all on the same page with, oh, the patriarchy, the patriarchy is the reason why things are this way. And we accept that and we understand that and we are able to protect the victims when they are women. But for some reason, we don't understand that men are victims as well. Now, don't get me wrong. The first people that will refuse that message is men. They will be the first person to tell you they are not victims. But the way I see it is the system, the way we've built it, though it's comprised of people, has created victims on both sides. That both men and women are victimized in different ways. A child doesn't know that it's okay to like pink dolls. That you're a boy doesn't... I like pink shirts. I like... Exactly. The message you, you, you put out to even the boys at extremely young ages is... This is not right. This is not how you're supposed to do. You should, when you're walking, you shouldn't, you should, you should stand ramrod straight. When you are in charge of something, you should be domineering. You should be invulnerable. You should not court any opinion from anyone. Like it is a tense and toxic mix that just creates the most unconscionable people. Absolutely. And you get called names like Wumarapa for crying. I think it's really important what you said, Jude, because what we have is a system. It's important when you're addressing issues. And I learned this from some of the uh, uh, cl- counseling classes that I've been taking in this uh, master's program, that when you try, when you, when you see a presenting situation or a presenting problem, it's important that you look at the big picture in determining how that thing got to be that way. So if, for example, you have a boy who throws a punch at another kid in the playground and you sit him down to talk to him to understand why he needed, you know, why he felt the need to use his hands and he tells you, I was frustrated. It's easy for you to say, oh, you were so wrong for that, right? Because you're looking at that incident as an isolated incident he used his hands the thing is if you dig deeper you are going to find patterns of behavior where he learned that that was okay right from when he was little and when he did something his parents didn't like they hit him so you've told him from when he was little that when somebody does what you don't like the way to react is to put your hands on them And then we're acting surprised that he's hitting other people. Where did he learn it? Agreed. That response might be instinctive because sometimes you don't need to teach kids to do things. But can we separate the fact that this behavior has been modeled to this child from when he was little? True. Because I, I can even now at my big age, I see myself or something I've been doing for the last couple of years is doing a deep understanding of why I am the way I am, the things I like, the, my motivations, my particular idiosyncrasies, like why is this? And the more I sit with myself and investigate it, the more I can literally see patterns as to where certain traits come from. 
I can see that, oh, growing up, my mother was someone who was taking care of three kids as a single mom on a government job, and she was harassed, like she was stressed, and she nagged a lot, and she shouted a lot. If you shout at me now, I will not do whatever you're saying. It's literally sacrosanct for me. Like, mm. And I, I being able to understand and look back into my past, I understood why I'm that way now. Like, if you nag at me, I will not do it. If you shout at me, it is not getting done. I will not be micromanaged. I will not have someone on my case over something. But if you want to sit down with me and have a conversation as to, okay, this is the goal we're trying to achieve. How do we do it? You have, you have my 100% support. I will get it done. I will go to bat for you for that. But the minute you try to be domineering over me or, or nag me about an issue, I shut down. So, I think it's remarkable that level of self-awareness where you're able to sit down and look inwards and recognize patterns, trends, and why things are the way they are. That's like, that's like the biggest step towards undoing some of the damage that has been done in terms of the way we were raised and then accepting ownership of what your current choices are and creating new patterns, you know, of behavior going forward. And I think that that's what is important to recognize instead of trying to decide that one person is good because they did this thing and this person is bad because they did this thing. It's important for us to recognize that patterns happen and no individual is, no individual just is one person that you see is made up of their own personal self schema, the way they were parented, the way they were raised, the environment within which they were raised, the education they got, something even as simple as their position in the family, were they the first child, were they the middle child, were they the last child, were their parents authoritative, were they authoritarian, were they per, uh, permissive, all these different factors go into making a person the way they are. So when you look at a person and you decide, oh, this person responds this way, or this person has mental illness, that person is, isn't just that portion that you see. Do you understand what I mean? They're like a whole person with yes. all these different parts. So it's important when we approach issues of mental illness or examples that you gave about how we were raised and your personal response to when you're giving instructions or when somebody's being domineering. It's important that you recognize that attribute as part of a big picture of who you are. And you have the self-awareness to recognize that this is why I respond this way. And then you can decide going from there as a result of that self-awareness, what changes that you're going to make. So that's part of what makes you want this whole autonomous being that you are. So now imagine that you're in a society where you repeatedly hear that messaging and information. It is shameful to talk about, you know, mental illness, or you watch other people being shamed for admitting their weaknesses. You can see why a lot of the people, a lot of people are the way they are, especially if you come from a Nigerian background where people don't openly discuss weaknesses because we don't wash our dirty linen in public. Uh, dirty linen. Ojuaye, I call it. Well, I don't think it's ojuaye as in people deliberately being pretentious. It's just that if you watch one person being dragged for daring to admit their imperfection or for their weakness being exposed, 
what it immediately does to you is teach you to hide your weakness more. So we have a society that wants people to be honest about their weaknesses, but once a person's weakness is exposed, how do we react? And I think we can see that in how we interact online. When someone comes forward with some type of flaw, we are the first to drag that person for it. Exactly. Even when they're not being even malicious, they even when they're not being malicious or being hurtful to anyone else, but they come forward with, "This is how I am not a hundred percent perfect." Some people sometimes you find support, but sometimes they get dragged for it, and you can't know before you put it out there that this is how it will be received. I can see how that I can see how that would be a detriment for some people. We can't on one hand say, "Oh, we want people to be honest about their imperfections." while punishing and when i say punishing i use it in the behavioral sense while punishing people for being imperfect does that make sense yeah yes it does yeah so when we talk about mental illness it's important for us to recognize that we're talking about a very complex issue we're talking about an issue that has to do with the way people were raised and maybe their temperament or other co occurring factors so mental illness isn't something that can be described in like very simple terms especially because we've come a long way from when mental illness was related to being you know spiritually attacked or to being in yabale to recognizing that two in five people will have some kind of mental illness and like I was saying earlier on in the conversation about the abundance of information, now we're aware that when a person talks about being mentally ill, it doesn't mean that they're stark raving mad, roaming the streets. So people are becoming more aware. I think that abundance of information is helpful because we can recognize the things that we didn't recognize before. And that also helps with removing the stigma. I think one of the biggest things that goes hand in hand with stereotyping is stigma. There's still stigma related to mental illness because once you find out that the person battles mental illness, it starts to affect their relationships. Like, is somebody going to hire me now that I, they know that I, I, you know, have this mental illness? Is somebody going to marry me? Do I need to pretend to be someone I'm not just so that I can be accepted in the community? So people are probably outrightly denying the issues that they have because they know that the way society is set up, once a person does not conform, once a person is different, they are ejected because the people that are in the majority They are the ones who get to decide what's okay. So if most people in the community decide, and when I say decide, not in an overt, expressive, obvious way, exactly, but just by the way that we behave, that only people who are perfect or who meet a certain definition are the ones that we hold in high regard or the ones that are welcome in our community, we are indirectly communicating to everyone who doesn't belong or whose imperfection is obvious that they are not accepted so we are doing a really good job all of us of hiding our imperfections meanwhile 
all of us have one thing or the other that's going on with us. That is, that is so true because what I'm starting to understand is mental health is a spectrum. All of us are not okay in some level Thank or the, you. Or the that's other. That's very important. We just tend to pick on the ones who are on the farther end of the spectrum and say, okay, those ones are mentally ill. I'm okay. Yes, but the truth yes, of the matter yes, is yes. we're all flawed. And that, that, that is sad because if we can't objectively look at ourselves and understand that, okay, this parts of myself are probably not healthy. And then we hide that and look at someone who obviously needs help more than we do. And we pick on that person. And then as a community, as a mob, we now, we now go down on them and we decide that, okay, you are going to be the scapegoat for all of our frustrations. You are going to be the poster child for what is not right and what, what, what makes us perfect and you imperfect. And it, I think it's just sad. Thank you, Dalton. You raised a very, very important point. You said that mental illness exists on a spectrum. So ranging from mild to severe, everybody is on that spectrum at a certain point. Well, no, well. Every, and when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Because let me explain to you something about the medical model and the mental health model. So with the medical model of a person being well and unwell, we tend to look at people as either being sick or as being healthy. So when you bring that medical model to mental health, you want to do that same thing and put people in a box. They're either mentally ill or they're mentally well. Unfortunately, that mental, uh, that uh, medical model has been found to be ineffective with mental illness because there's no such thing as being completely mentally um, mentally well in the sense of being physically well the way it is in the medical model everybody is on some is it's on that everybody is on that journey but some people's journeys are just more difficult than others and the reason is that a lot of the part a lot of the 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 factors that come into mental illness are traumatic experiences that we have zero control over. So you have mental health trouble because of the way you were raised. It's not something that you did to yourself. It's something that just happened. Or you have PTSD as a result of some kind of war or, or maybe thieves came to your house when you were little and you guys got robbed, right? And you have PTSD as a result of that. Are you now saying that if I say I have anxiety or an anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder as a result of an imbalance in the chemical functions of my brain or as a result of a past traumatic experience, are you saying I'm in the exact same situation as somebody who has severe bipolar disorder and has to be hospitalized? So people are thinking, no, I'm not mentally ill. Because we think of mental illness as this extreme thing. But like you said, it is a spectrum with there being people who have medically diagnosed disorders and people who just have conditions or symptoms. So a person can be anxious, but that doesn't mean that they have an anxiety disorder. A person can feel depressed. That doesn't mean that they have major depressive disorder. A person can feel sad because of an event. That doesn't mean that they now have clinical depression. It's just that we lump all of these feelings and all of this trauma under mental illness. And we say, 
I can never have mental illness in Jesus' name or God forbid. That's a great segue into my next question. Now that we know it's a spectrum, like how do we differentiate someone who is having an anxiety attack from someone who's just anxious to somebody who's having a full bipolar mental health crisis? Because right now, as you can attest to, um, talking about mental illness is gaining some ground. As much as we're saying men still don't come out to admit to it, women do. And you can notice that they, they a bunch of different um, terms have been thrown around. Oh, I have OCD or I have this. Yeah, almost like it's cool. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, a new, it's a new cool thing to do. And so my question is, how do we differentiate to differentiate who is in a real mental health crisis as to who is having anxiety? So how do we figure it out? How do we know who needs help? immediate help to someone who needs to sit sit down and just chill out? I think that's a good question. And unfortunately, it doesn't have a simple answer. So in my roundabout way, I'm going to say, why do we need to know the difference? Why is it important that we're differentiating between feelings of sadness and major depressive disorder? Why is it important that we're differentiating between being anxious and having anxiety? And I'm going to go ahead and answer the question myself because that difference helps us know how to approach it, right? Being able to determine if a person has depression will help us know what we need to do. Do they need to go into a, you know, treatment facility? Do they just need somebody to talk to? Do they need to talk to a counselor? Do they need to talk to a psychiatrist? I think that those are all important questions. But I don't think they really address the issue, which is our approach to mental illness. Because it appears to me that being able to differentiate those things still is so that it can make it easier for us to separate ourselves from people who have, you know, severe cases. So I think that what we should be focusing on is if we recognize that everyone is on the spectrum of mental health challenges, then we're no longer like feeling a need to distinguish and differentiate. So our empathy comes into it. Exactly. That's what we need more than being able to differentiate is to be able to approach everyone with the point of view of everyone has something they're struggling with, including me, as opposed to we are okay and those people have mental illness. So that's my own, like if there's anything I personally advocate, it is that approach to mental illness, not, oh, that thing that happens to those people. Moving more towards a perspective of we all have something that we're dealing with, especially because a lot of mental health problems don't present physically. So if you recognize that this person that I'm talking to or this person that I'm chatting with or this person that I'm texting back or this person that I'm leaving a message on that their post has stuff that they're dealing with, then perhaps we can be more empathetic in our approach to other people. Because if we're trying to differentiate, are we trying to differentiate so that we can label them adequately? Are we looking out for the symptoms of mental health, mental illness so we can say, ah, I can tell from what you're doing that you're mad, that you have depression or those, or, or like sometimes I see 
comments that appear to be helpful that say, hmm, depression is very rampant now. You people should look out for your friends. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, and what does that even mean? I, I, I actually see so much of what you're saying in how people interact with themselves when it comes to issues of mental health. And someone who's a little tired will say, oh, I need the self-care day to mentally um, decompress. And I'm like, I understand what you're saying, but someone with more serious issues might look at this and think, oh, I'm not depressed. I just need a self-care day. And they think doing the same thing will resolve their problems, which somebody which is dangerous. Yeah, which can be dangerous. So somebody who has major depressive disorder say, hmm, oh, oh, so you, are, you went through a season of depression, perhaps because of an event, maybe somebody died, or maybe you had a major life loss of a relationship of a close person. And you say, ah, I was depressed. Oh, and then I prayed, and then I played praise worship music. And the depression lifted. Praise lifts depression. And someone... I'm going to leave that religious side first. I'm even just using as an example, kind of like how you said self-care. Or somebody just says, or okay, maybe let me say, somebody says, anytime I get a money petty, I no longer feel depressed. And so while it appears that you're sharing information on helpful tips to combat depression, you're completely perhaps oblivious of the fact that a person has major depressive disorder, which isn't something that is brought on by an event, which is due to the, the way that their brain is wired, right? So they have major depressive disorder and they can't will themselves to be happy. Interesting. Yeah, that, that, that definitely puts a different perspective on it. What I want to know is, okay, now that you you have some experience with mental health like what would be your perfect in a perfect world how would you expect us to handle the situations how would you expect us to figure out who needs therapy how do we interact with them how do we communicate with them how do we help them i don't know if that makes sense first of all lol at perfect world ha 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 in our dreams we're never going to we're never going to get there. If a perfect world is our goal, we're never going to get there. This is what I think. This, I think that our attitude and perspective can be better. And that can become better as we become more exposed to information, which I'm hoping that a podcast like this can do. What's our attitude Amen. to mental illness? And when you say who needs therapy, the answer is everyone. So therapy is no longer that thing that defective people need or that thing that people who have mental illness need. Therapy is ter- therapy needs to be normalized because if everyone has life is set up such that you will have mental health challenges because life will happen to you. Because everyone at some level has has experienced grief, has experienced loss, has experienced trauma that has been brought on by life events. So everybody needs to be working on and processing their trauma. So this isn't a question of who needs therapy or how do we identify the people who need therapy. This is a question of we all need help. What What are you doing to 
address your challenges? What am I doing to address my challenges? How can I help you to address your challenges? Not those people that have challenges. What can they do? It is what is my mental health condition and how can I begin to address my mental health problems? And that is a great segue into my next question. How do we look for resources? What is a reputable um, therapist we can look to? How do we find them? How do we uh, review them or grade them to know that this is someone I can go to? Or are there different therapists for different problems? Like, what's the landscape? That's kind of a tricky question because it will vary significantly from environment to environment. But it is given across board that the availability of mental health resources compared to the people who need them, there's, there's just not enough. Like there's not enough mental health help for people like out there. That's just what it is. And why is that? Because there's a lot of training and education that's required to, you know, be licensed or to be, you know, to be equipped to handle, you know, the challenges. And so the barriers to becoming a professional, they're really high. Well, and then another reason is because we've not really taken mental health as seriously as we're beginning to. So we're coming from a background where nobody's really going to school for counseling that much to now it's now becoming obvious that everyone needs it and people are normalizing it and then more and more people are reaching out for help but there's inadequate help so across board across every country of the world there's not enough mental health help for the people that need it so that means that we're going to have challenges finding help but that's not that that i don't think that that should be a deterrent i think what that should make us do is become more aware of the need for more people to go into the field and even though everybody's not going to be able to be a counselor people can read up and learn like for example there's there's some online courses where you can take for mental health first aid which make which uh, uh, taking a, a course like that online will help you to know and identify what some of the triggers are or what some of the symptoms are in people and you can be more empathetic you know so and it might be something as simple as even though you recognize that everyone has stuff they're dealing with you while you're dealing with your stuff you're a little bit more empathetic with the people around you so the person around you might not have access to a clinician or to a therapist but they have you and they can listen to you right okay okay i i think that is even a better way to ask this question as to how do we open up to the people in our lives talking and opening up to people in our lives does it help our mental health and do we do do we take a step back to look at the people that are around us and you, and see if they will be helpful before opening up to them or just will just being able to open up would that be helpful Hmm. That's an interesting question. And I think it's kind of tricky to answer because everyone's situation is different. For some people, the people that we recommend that they open to open up to are the people that are actually the sources of trauma in their lives. You know what I mean? So are we saying just talk to the people around you? What if the person around them is the abusive person that's actually the source of their trauma? 
and then are we now going to guilt trip them that uh, you two why didn't you open up what if they have trauma from opening up to the wrong person who went around and used the information that was provided to them you know to be abusive or what if they're talking to a professional who's not helpful who contributes to their trauma because of a lack of empathy they're also the challenges of depending on the environment that you are you might be surrounded by people who invalidate you know your concerns that you bring up so it's it's really hard i don't think that there's one blanket answer that's good enough for everyone so i'm going to approach it from a point of view of each of us should be asking ourselves in what way can i contribute to the solution instead of complaining that there's there are not enough solutions does that make sense so am yeah. i listening am i the kind of person that my friend can talk to and they can be guaranteed that i'm not going to be judgmental do i show empathy to others am i kind in my response or am i judgy and critical so you're yeah, saying we should all get off twitter <laughs> we can just if everyone improves the circle and the space that they occupy the world will be a better place so i, I want to flip the question from what can other people do to make the world a better place to what can i do while recognizing that what makes you a solution is not your absence of problems like i usually explain to people as a clinical mental health i like that i like that phrase what makes you a solution is not the absence of your problems yeah so as a clinical mental health counselor for example i'm not a counselor because i don't have problems I'm a counselor because in addition to my problems, I'm learning the skills that I need to help other people, not because my problems are gone. So if, for example, you find out that your therapist has major depressive disorder, are you going to be like, ha, therapist that has depression, how can that one help somebody? <laughs> what qualifies the person to be a helper is not that they don't have those problems. It's just like I actively practice as a behavior coach right now, and I have behavior problems my children have behavior problems. I have behaviors I'm working on and I have, you know, behavior problems that my children have that I'm working on them with. What qualifies me to be a good behavior coach? Is it the absence of behavior challenges in my children or the fact that I have the skills and the tools that I'm using in the process? So this is in a world of people who have mental illness versus people who don't have mental illness. This is a world of everybody is carrying their own load and finding a way to help others carry it as well how and why does our culture make the mental health topic a taboo for us as black men why is it the way it is it's hard and like i said much earlier it's a combination of a lot of factors so there's no simple you know there's no simple answer and I'm not going to want us to spend time addressing the problem as much as addressing the solution because there's no single reason why our culture is messed up. I mean, all you have to do is listen to the news. The whole entire world is messed up. Some places are just perhaps a little more messed up than others. That's why sometimes when I go online and somebody says, now what for this country? I'm like... <laughs> Whichever of the countries that they are talking about, my country of origin or the country I'm, I currently live in, you get sometimes people say, ah, do we even have a president in this country? Well. <laughs> I am like, which one? Nigeria, America. Like, which one? Because across board, the problems are there. So do we want to talk about why the problems, you know, are there? Why is such a messed up place? How we got to this point? Or do we want to talk about, okay, it's messed up. What is one thing that I, not them... 
that I can do differently today to make things easier. And I can give you a couple of examples that all of us can start to practice right away. Number one, listen more. Number two, show empathy. And if somebody asks me, how do I show empathy? The answer is really simple. If you were the one that messed up like this, how would you like to be treated? And if your response is, I can never mess up like this, never, I know better, then I'm like, ha, 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 good luck. It's only a matter of time because everybody has blind spots. Everybody has a kink in their armor. Nobody has it all together. So it's only a matter of time before you sleep. You might just be lucky because you're not in the public eye. Your sleep up might not make headline news, but everybody is sleeping up on the regular, including your faves. You keep saying we should leave Twitter without saying. What's what's is what is what do you have against this place? <laughs> let's all be there. Let's all mess up together. Let's all learn and grow together. But there's nobody on God's green earth that has it a hundred percent figured out. Nobody. Everybody's winging it. Everybody's trying to make it work. Everybody's putting a brave face on. So once you remove the dichotomy of people who are good versus people who are bad or people who have mental illness versus people who don't have mental illness, you'll make it a lot simpler. Everybody is carrying their load. Some people that know, I've known how to, I've learned to package their load nicely and wrap it up in a nice box and put a bow on it. So perhaps it doesn't appear that they're a mess, but at some level, everybody is struggling. So remove people from that pedestal that you've put them on that. Ah, there are people who are not struggling. Here I am struggling. Or look at me, I'm not struggling. Those people are struggling. All of us are. So we can be more empathetic because when we see someone else struggling, we're like, there but for the grace of God go I. And I say that loosely because I know even that can be denigrating because you're like, "Mm, those people are suffering because they don't have God's grace. I'm saying that could easily be me giving a different set of circumstances, perhaps circumstances of birth, perhaps life choices, but that could easily be me. Then you can be empathetic because you're saying, Oh my God, I'm sorry you're having such a hard time as opposed to, Oh my God, look at you. You're having a hard time Hmm. when you will be making poor choices. Just that small difference in how we approach other people and their problems can make all the difference in the world. The day we observe someone slip up, we go from how can, why won't you sleep up when you will not, you know, be a good person. We can go from that to, Oh, wow. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it must have been for you ending up in this situation. That is a very empathetic view that honestly, I, I, I know we see some of it, but I don't think we see enough of it. So my, my thing is as much as we can talk to each other and expect a certain level of empathy from each other, is there from your experience, is there a particular way we can, as men, do this better for each other? Do you think there's a difference to how women interact with each other that we men can learn from and do the same for ourselves? Ah, that's a good question, which I'm not exactly sure how to answer. But let me just say that giving up what society's expectations are might go a long way 
So we can move from this is the way the world expects me to be to our authentic selves, which is this is who I am. So for example, if you feel like crying, then you cry without allowing yourself to not cry because the world says men aren't supposed to cry. So that requires a lot of self-awareness though and a lot of introspection where you're able to ask yourself, why do I feel like this? What's wrong with feeling like this, you know? But it's a lot, it, it, feelings are hard. Feelings are very difficult. I make it sound simple, but addressing and navigating and working through feelings, the process is really hard. It's a lot easier to medicate with, you know, I don't know, everybody medicates with something. Some people medicate with food, some people medicate with alcohol, some people medicate with partying and, you know, hanging out with their friends. Everybody is dealing with something, but, and everybody has coping strategies. It's just that some coping strategies are helpful and some are harmful. So if we can ask ourselves, why not? So if you want to do something and you're like men aren't supposed to do that, the, the question you should be asking yourself is why, why not? And if your answer is culture, then you can say, okay, that's not a good enough reason. Then you can dig deeper. Does that make sense? Yes, and any statement that starts with men aren't supposed to, anything you say after that point is exactly. bullshit. Exactly, just cancel it. Like, just cancel, cancel the requirements and start to live authentically so that that way you have a reason for doing what you're doing as opposed to culture. So question everything, ask questions. If you're a parent who's raising kids, before you tell your kid boys don't or girls don't, ask yourself, why? Is there a reason? And I, I've, I've said before in the past that I think that God sends children into the world to force parents to think about ingrained habits and behaviors that are harmful because your kid will ask you, oh, really? Why? Like I remember one time a couple of years ago, my, my kid asked me, why is it okay for me to shout at my brother and it's okay for you to shout at me? And my instinctive response was to shout back and say, am I your mate? <laughs> but that was a legitimate question. I love her. Why is it okay for why if you say being disrespectful is bad, why is it okay for you to be disrespectful to me? And because of self-awareness and being able to accept feedback, I was able to take what my kid said, think about it and say, that's true. If I'm telling my kid it's not okay to be disrespectful to the people you love, which was what I was saying to him, why is it okay for me to be disrespectful to this person? Interesting. I I see how just being able to take a step back and use self-awareness to say, I'm about to do this. Why? I want this. Why do I want it? I normally do this, but I have never investigated the reason why I do it. I, I tweeted something a couple of days ago. Was it yesterday or today? I don't remember that. Why do you believe in what you believe? I've, how much of what we know or we take as gospel, have we actually investigated as people or as a person? I understand that the safety of a group or the safety of community sometimes helps us take away so much responsibility for some of our decisions, some of our choices. Yeah, we can but, outsource it. Exactly. And But the problem is we're living in a world now where the, the consequences, you don't suffer it as a community anymore. You suffer it as an individual. If you make a choice based on the my group, the group I identify with does this. 
in the past, I think people could get away with it because there was this, we didn't have this interconnectivity where each person had a profile, you had an identity. And if you did something out of line, despite the fact that you were doing it based on my group, it's okay with my group to do this. As a man, we're supposed to do this. As a Nigerian, this is how we act. But when you do things along those lines, using your identity as a group, you're going to pay for it with your identity as a person. And I don't think we've, we've caught up to that yet. That's a really important perspective that you bring. That's not something I've talked about. Now, consequences are now delivered on an individual level as opposed to on a group level. Hmm. But people, people are still making decisions or making choices from the group perspective, not thinking about the consequences on an individual perspective because that is how you will pay for it. It's a, it, the bill you're writing as, a, as part of a group, you're going to pay out of a personal pocket. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the world we're living in now. And it's like we haven't evolved enough to take that into cognizance. So it's, it's an interesting time. And, and learning so much every day, learning about self-awareness and objectivity, it's been something I've been doing for a while now. And I actually enjoy it. I, I don't know if that's weird, but I enjoy observing myself, observing my needs, which has also made me a little weirder because I now do crazy things because I realize I enjoy certain things that are outside the norm. But because I've been able to converse with myself, I've been able to sit down and investigate my own motivations, I've been better able to own my needs and my wants and say, okay, you know what, I want, I want this. Not because I was motivated by a group or some external party, but this is something that, that enriches me personally. It's a little selfish, but I like myself right now. I think it's really important, this perspective that you bring of self-awareness and asking yourself questions, which, like you've said, if we're not thinking about it, we just move on with life passively as part of a group and say, well, that's what the group does. So you've brought up a very, very, very important thing that you're doing, which is asking yourself questions, introspection, questioning yourself and coming to conclusions based on your own choice, as opposed to that's what they said men do, or that's what my father did. Asking myself, does this work? Why am I doing it? Do I like the results I'm getting as a result of this choice? If I don't like it, what do I want to do differently? Then you can take ownership of your actions and behaviors because they are choices as opposed to group think. And you also said something that's very, very important, which I think that all of us will benefit from practicing, which is not just thinking and taking ownership of things, but recognizing that you're on a journey. So you have not arrived. In fact, you're never going to arrive. You're always going to be processing. So checking yourself, how did I do today? This choice that I made, is this a good choice? Can I make a better choice? Is this wise? Checking, unchecking, learning, relearning, picking up new habits, dropping old habits. It's always going to be a continuous self-improvement journey. If all of us approach life like the way you just described it, do you agree that we're going to be in a better world? I would hope so. I would really hope so. Because for me, I think what shifted my worldview 
was election night 2016. I know it's weird. But up until that point, it's not like I didn't have questions and uh, back and forth over issues or over, over certain things I believed in. But that night, it tilted my worldview in such a way. That was the night um, Agent Orange got um, elected. So Agent I, Orange, I like that's, that. That's, that's what I call him. <laughs> So, Agent but the thing was, I refuse to, I refuse to type his name anywhere. No, like on my, I, no. as in, I, I vehemently re- refuse. That's my own act of, of rebellion, of resistance. <laughs> <laughs> but that night changed how I looked at so much because before then there were certain things I believed in that I took as sacrosanct. That merit was a thing that, and which was, which let me take a, a step back. Growing up in Nigeria. I felt like it, I didn't. I felt like I didn't fit because everyone was a hustler. That was the only way you were gonna get ahead, irrespective of your background. You had to hustle. You had to be aggressive. You had to. You had to push. You had to be domineering. Guess what? I am none of those things. I am a laid back, chill person who believes in doing what is right based on my personal values and going for what you going for what you consider your goal. And achieving it based on your hard work. But that night, based on my original values, I expected that the competent person would win. The person we, that has worked the most. expect that. Exactly. The, the person that had worked hardest, that had done the work, that had, that had put herself out there and done the research, put out policies that would benefit people. The person that was without on every reasonable skill was... It was not even... They were not even in the same galaxies. It was... It was... I didn't... I expected landslide. Like, I expected... That night, I expected a world record historical land, uh, landslide. Look, I mean, I voted that day and I figured, well, I voted. I'm going to bed. It's done. I didn't go to bed immediately. I kept... I kept paying attention to it for a while. And things started going south. I was like, you know what? This is just the first couple of hours. Things are going to turn. And then I went to bed. But then... The way I looked at it was, this was literally like light and dark. Like there was, there was no reason to even compare them. This was one person who threatened every good thing, who called people names, who, who felt his way of connecting to the people who support him was to insult other people. Look, I'm even and getting I've... emotional that we're even talking about it now. In fact, I am, I'm vexing. <laughs> and this is, a, this is, these are the kind of things that cause mental health issues for people because this are kind of this is the kind of information that come to us in a way that didn't come to us in the past so anyways i looked at it as this is one person who been been a student of history i understood all the antecedents of what he was doing this is how you start you call a group of people the other you you call them names you you make them less than human this is how holocaust start. this is how genocides start this is literally the templates and i was like no, this is America. Like, this country as... Because when I moved here, like, okay, I think I digressed a little bit. As I was saying that, when I was growing up in Nigeria, everything felt a certain way, and I felt like I didn't fit. When I moved to the U.S., one of the first things I realized was, to a certain extent, merit mattered again. I could work hard and provide for my family to a comfortable... We might not get stupid wealthy, but I could work hard and provide to my family to a comfortable level in a way that medical emergencies or whatever, or life's, life's craziness, we could, 
protect ourselves to a certain level. Yeah. And it would be by merit and by hard work. And then I, and then that night happened and everything just shifted. Everything shifted for me because I was like, wait, what? And then this was the part that, that was really in- incredible for me was the fact that he used, he used religion as the platform, as the fact that a, a good look, number of people look. used God as their reasoning to choose this person just, it broke me. And breaking me from that point was, okay, now I was like, you know what? We're going to take every single shard and we are going to look at it. We're going to start from scratch and we are, and I, I spent the last two, three years just questioning everything, religion, relationships, uh, basically all the foundations of what I thought made me, me. And honestly, I, I, I feel like I've never done 1%. And that's where I am right now. It, it, it is incredible. But here's the thing. The person I am today, I like him a lot more than the person I was two years ago. And that's the important thing. As long as you're making progress and you're, that's that constant self-checking thing that you're always doing. Which is your, your you know, you're your, your using your self-awareness, you're observing, you're checking, like, okay, is this okay? Is this who I am? Is this who I'm supposed to be? What am I doing? That just that sense of checking and rechecking is what I think can make like the biggest impact. So we go from passive mode to, well, that's life, well, that's how I've always done it, to asking yourself that. And and it can even be simple things, like really simple things, like mm-mm. Why do I always, like, let me think of a really good example. When I was younger in Nigeria, every morning, my parents made sure that we checked the engine oil and water in the radiator before they, you know, before they left home and girls or boys, it didn't matter. Everybody was, it was all our collective responsibility to check. And so I moved to America and what I was asking my husband, I said, when I was growing up every day, we always checking engine oil and radiator. In this America, I've never seen us. <laughs> I don't know where the engine oil is in America. I'm telling I've never you. seen us check the engine oil and radiator. And the thing occurred to me that, you know, that if I still lived in Nigeria, because even when I, you know, grew up and I became independent and I lived, you know, away from home, I still checked my engine oil and the radiator every morning. So I said, ah, why aren't we checking engine oil? And he said, well, a lot of people are just checking engine oil and radiator for nothing, just out of sheer force of habit of that's what we always did. So the day you ask story. yourself, hey, yeah, this thing, why am I doing it? I and tell you, you can't story. find a reason, then you can make a new choice and make a change. But I don't know if it's about how we were, if it was because of how we were raised, we just say, ah, that's what they do. And we have all kinds of proverbs and sayings and anecdotes that support that kind of thinking. So much so that when we see somebody that questions the norm, we get angry. We feel attacked personally because somebody asked us that, ah, this thing that you're always doing, why? And then they have That's to another value. thing. Why, why is that human reaction to... When someone is different from the norm, our first reaction is to attack them. Why is that? I don't understand that part. Because it challenges us. It forces us to think that, oh my God, could I have been wrong this whole time? Do you know how hard thinking and accepting personal responsibility is? 
it's a lot easier to go with the flow and accept group think and let somebody else think for us that's why it's a lot easier for people to say well my mom said that's how we always did it but the simple question is really so you mean church why I you and we do it across board we say oh my teacher said my mom said because we've accepted that someone is an authority figure and we can outsource our thinking to them and it's even the, if, if you look at the way we're raising our kids as well for those of us that are parents we hear our, the way we tell our kids things. We don't want to hear them ask us why, because why forces you to stop and think thinking is hard. We'd rather just go passively on. So when your kid says, ah, mom, why do you always, you know, do this? That challenges your, so instead of looking at it as a honest question that, you know, makes you that you can give you know, an answer to, you look at that question as a challenge. So you don't want other people asking why, because it's uncomfortable. Even you, you are not asking yourself why, because it's uncomfortable. It forces you to want to change. Change is hard. I should even say this, uh, a week ago I went for my annual checkup and my doctor was like, uh, one of the questions he asked me was, do you use the seatbelt when you drive. I was shocked. I was like, what kind of question is that? Apparently it's one of the general questions they use to, I don't know, I don't know, whatever. It's one of the questions they ask. I just, I think my face showed how confused I was by the question. I was like, of course I do. And it was like, oh, it didn't mean it that way that one thing he has noticed that is Nigerian patients usually don't, don't use their seatbelts. And <laughs> I have to think about, I have to think about it for a second. And it made sense because if you grew up in Nigeria and you started driving in Nigeria for a long time, using a seatbelt was not was not a safety thing. It wasn't something we 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 were uh, thought to do instinctive, instinctively. We were just if you felt like it, yes. Sometimes they'd be like it would it would it would stain my dress or something. I just knew that if you grew up in Nigeria, using a seatbelt was not something people did instinctively. Unlike me, who I didn't start driving until I moved here, so. I just never knew there was another way, but knowing knowing what I did about other people who drove in Nigeria using a seatbelt was not, and then all of a sudden it made sense. I was like, "Oh, sorry about that, but that's just the way we were raised." So we were. So some of it, like you said, I think to this this point that you make is very important because it actually answers your question of why do we find that we respond in annoyance or anger or we respond with negative emotions when our beliefs or or values are challenged because that's what we learned growing up that you don't ask why you just do what you're told to do and the nigerian culture is one that values compliance especially in younger people so you can when you hear a person say ah that kid is a good kid what they're saying is that that kid is a highly compliant kid so you now come to an environment in a in a place like america where it is an environment that has thrived because people questioned everything and that's why there's a lot more development and so somebody asks you why and the first thing you're thinking is who are you to question me meanwhile that's a simple question that just says explain your logic but to us, our ideas about roles and authority, they suggest that the older person or the teacher is always right. I struggled a lot when I, I struggled a lot when I got into college because I would watch these small children just challenge the professor and I'll be thinking to myself that, yeah, do you even want to pass at all? 
these children don't have respect though until i started to realize that oh the professor is not necessarily the subject matter expert we're growing and advancing because everybody is asking things and new ideas are being developed so guess who has now become a renegade in oh, class <laughs> in class on wednesday just two days ago i was still telling my professor <laughs> i was like what do you mean he was saying that some of the areas of research that we can go into will be for example what is and what is an ideal partner or how do you find a good partner and i asked him i said what's the meaning of good what does that even mean what does good partner mean does your definition of good have to be my definition of good and he said oh it's good that you mentioned that that goes to show that the definition de definition is subjective i said yeah so in your research paper you can't say good you have to use clear terms that are not ambiguous so he said okay then i need to redesign okay, my, my research question see the baby that first came to america would never ever ever have done that i can remember school in, in lagos in lag if you were the kid that constantly annoyed the lecturer with questions you either had to be the best kid in class like the most at least one of the three most brilliant kids or you would fail because they would look at you and they would be like why is this little pest annoying me you're not that smart why are you asking me questions so like exactly I, so that, I so totally that get what you're saying i think culturally the way we were raised we were we were raised to view opposing opinions as some kind of challenge meanwhile the real question is if you believe that so much or if you value it so much why is it impossible for you to defend it or why can't you explain it? Does that make sense? Yes, yes, I, I totally get that. As a mother of young boys, I've seen, we, we watch how you raise them. We watch how you do so much to raise them to be better people. And my question is, do you have some methodology, some plan to how you're raising them that you're using right now or you're just winging it like the rest of us? That's an interesting question. Yes, I'm winging it like everyone else. I think I just have the added advantage of being a behavior therapist. So I apply the techniques and the skills that I learned as part of my education. And it translated seamlessly to parenting. So I use those, you know, skills that I've learned. And what I found was that as I began to share them with other people, I started having people, you know, ask me questions and, you know, request you know tips and techniques that they can use as well to help them you know parent more effectively so i started to make uh, youtube videos recently where i'm teaching people the science and so in my in my work as behavior coach g i share those principles but i also coach people on the side because what i found is that life happens and parents are presented with challenges that they don't have the tools to deal with so when people have you know things that i can help them with as a coach with their behavior i, I consult for a couple of companies as well and like people generally who are trying to use the science of behavior to solve behavior problems and fix pain points i use the the science of behavior that i learned as part of my degree and board certification in that capacity so to answer your question yes i use behavioral science and also yes i'm winging it 
That's interesting because um, sometimes I look at it and it's daunting because if you are self-aware enough to consider that you are raising a child who is to be, for all intents and purposes, is a blank slate. Yes, they do come with some craziness of theirs, but most of them is is not yet formed. And every single thing you do will have an effect on this child. It terrifies me sometimes because I'm like, am I sure that I am paying enough attention? Am I sure that I am making all the right choices for this child's future? Am I sure that I am not building bad habits that this child will regret in the future? Because I can look at myself and see that, oh, this is where I picked this from. And I can trace it back to how I was raised. So knowledge of that makes me trying to raise a child even more, uh, I wouldn't say terrifying. It is the best thing in my life, but it is definitely something I am cognizant of how much of work it is in terms of every single thing you do as an nothing you do when it comes to raising a child is just because they will pick up on everything they pick up on everything they they learn from it they they imitate everything my daughter dances like i dance which is terrible my poor the poor thing i like to believe she's for her to pick up my dance steps so quickly she's she's rhythmic she's she's fast she'll learn she'll realize okay yeah daddy that's not the way to do it i can do it better so i, I have hope on that you definitely on, hope on that, so on that, on that but she, <laughs> it's, it's amazing so. it's amazing to watch them grow and learn from you and pick up things from you so believe me i i'm totally i'm totally a student of everything you're doing I am learning from it. Keep doing it because some of us literally survive on it. Because I I see how you talk to Alexis sometimes. I'm happy to hear that. And I'm like, oh, this is how you interact with a girl child. This is how you interact with a boy child. That as much as you try to make things as the same for them, there are differences. And I can see how you make those subtle changes when you interact with um, Alexis, different to how you interact with Nathan. And I'm like, wow. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So and it's, and, it's and I think most of the time, the differences are, they're more personality-based than gender-based, to be honest. Okay, okay. Because because I, I think that by understanding each of my kids' personalities, I'm able to tell the difference between one approach and another. So because I'm very aware of how stereotypical gender roles can mess up a kid when you're raising them i'm very aware of that so for example there are no gender-based chores in my house like there's no chore that one person does that the other person cannot do so everybody participates in the same thing and we're particular we're particular in the way we parent that we're doing the same thing. So my kids watch mom and dad work. They watch mom and dad go to school. They watch mom and dad cook, mom and dad clean, mom and dad lay the bed, mom and dad do the dishes. So they, they're not being raised with this idea that certain things are gender specific. Is the world going to try and teach them and mess up all the hard work we're doing? Yes. <laughs> But that also terrifies to, me. Yeah, we're already going to, you know, make sure that that foundation is in place and raise them deliberately and on purpose. So I would say that the differences in how I interact with them are more personality based than than gender based, honestly. 
Okay. Okay. That that that's that's a that's a that's an important distinction. So that's honestly that is a big part of of the questions I have. I think the last question I want us to cover is how is behavioral health or what is behavioral health and how is it different from mental health? Like is there a big difference or it's it's all from the same same source? Well, the difference is a technical, like, um, how would I put it? Like a technical discipline competition between the disciplines based questions. That I don't think that any of us should worry about behavior and mental health are integrated. They're interconnected. I don't think we should worry about the difference much. Okay. Okay. That's good. So that's it. Actually, th- those are all the questions I have for today. One thing I do know we'll do is we will bring you back from time to time if we have more specific questions or if we are doing an episode that covers something. Because one thing I'm learning is mental health is not something you can cover in a short time. It isn't. Well. It isn't just, at all. just as it's a spectrum, it covers and it bleeds into pretty much everything else we do. So the conversation will continue and we will invite you from time to time to come help us. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I, I've learned a lot today and I hope our listeners will learn as well. Thank you I very am, much. I'm Jane. super happy. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that I've been able to share and of course learn from you as well. And I look forward to being on your show again another time. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find Bemi on Twitter at Bemi Soke and on her behavioral coaching website, www.behaviorcoachg.com. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to the Modern Code Podcast. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and follow us on social media. We are the Modern Code, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. Bye.